Amen. Thank you, Miss Pam. What a beautiful song. Boy, we had some good gospel singing this morning, didn't we? I'll be, I would turn to Bob as soon as we started playing Grace Greater Than Our Sin and said, well, I'll be singing this in the office all week. Uh, and then I recognized something. Um, I'm the only one that constantly sings in the office, and I'm the only one that has no place singing in the office. Uh, you got Kristen Getty over here who can sing beautifully, and Shane and Shane back there, and the only one that's singing is Andy Bernard. Uh, so, uh, so um, I don't know why that's the case, but I'm thankful that it is. Uh, but good morning nonetheless. Hey, turn for the last time to 1 Thessalonians this morning. Uh, and as you're turning there, I did want to announce one thing I forgot. We are going to have a special guest preacher next week, and you're going to like this one. Former pastor of this church and mentor, disciple of mine, Mark Tuso, will be here next Sunday morning to bring God's Word. And so I'm excited to hear a word from the book of Isaiah that he's going to bring and uh, enjoy some time with the Tuso family. Uh, incredible pivotal role he played in my life. And I can definitely say I would not be here this morning for if God did not work through Mark Tuso, not only in his ministry at Gray Gables, but his ministry in my life as well. So I'm excited uh, for that and I pray that you'll come. Okay, 1 Thessalonians, we're in chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. And this brings us to the close of this book as a whole. And so let's just give a moment of silence for 1 Thessalonians, right? Uh, it's been a wonderful, uh, almost uh, probably a year worth of journey. And today, providentially, as we unpack the final verses of this book, we'll have an opportunity to review some of it and consider some of its major themes. And so it is an appropriate place to end this epistle. So what we'll do is if you are able, would you stand with me for the honor of reading God's word? We will read it, we'll pray over it, and then we will jump right in. I'm going to read the entire closing section here starting in verse 23 to 28. 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we do thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the letters of Paul who have instructed your people throughout the centuries. We thank you for this letter specifically written to this young church in Thessalonica. We thank you for the gospel that it proclaims, the correction it has made to our lives, the instructions it has offered up for us. We thank you for the encouragement we have found in it. Father, I ask that you would be pleased to visit us with your grace at the preaching of your word, that your people might be strengthened in Christ, in unity with one another, that in all things we might come more and more under the rule of your holy and sovereign Word. We ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, as I said, we're really just going to be considering verses 27 and verse 28 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In that we find the big idea, if I could put it simply for you, is that the Word of Christ 
and the grace of Christ are central to the life of the church. That'll be our big idea and kind of our outline this morning as well. The word of Christ and the grace of Christ are both central to the life of the church. As is our custom here, we will go in order. We'll start in verse 27 with the word of Christ and then we'll move on to verse 28 and consider the grace of Christ toward the end. So verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Verse 27, the word of Christ. Uh, with this being this, this command that's given in verse 27, I want us to consider three things in particular about this command to read the word. Uh, first is the seriousness of this command. This command is serious. Notice that Paul switches from the first person plural pronouns he's been using all throughout this letter. So we, us, and so on, to the first person singular. I, the Apostle Paul, myself, charge you, adjure you, put you under oath, cause to make you to swear to do something. See, this, this word charge is a very strong verb. Uh, left by itself in its root form, it's often translated to adjure. That is, to put someone under oath, to cause them to swear. This is a strong verb. It's to get someone to make someone do something. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, look me in the eyes. Look me right in the eyes. Promise me you are going to read this letter to all the holy brethren. And not only that, if the, if the verb wasn't strong enough, charge you, he adds that preposition to make it even stronger. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a thousand needles in your eye, or whatever we said on the elementary school playground back in the day. It's a super strong verb intensified by that preposition. It's meant to bind the recipients of this letter, placing them under a solemn oath to read this letter in the hearing of all the brothers and sisters in Christ in Thessalonica. Uh, and in case that, that, that strength of the verb fails to impress, Paul adds again that preposition, by the Lord. See, they weren't simply bound by a charge. They were bound by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no wiggle room here, folks. There's no second guessing how important this command was or questioning whether this epistle really needed to be read to everyone. Paul adjures them in the strongest possible terms and did so before King Jesus. So what is Paul actually commanding them to do here? What is the command? Paul's epistle simply was to be read publicly. That's the command. Paul's epistle was simply to be read publicly. Uh, the verb translated be read usually means to read aloud in public. It's how it's always translated throughout the scriptures. In fact, it was often used to speak about the New Testament, in the New Testament, speak about when the Old Testament was read in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So, for example, it's spoken of in Jesus, about Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, when the Bible says, So he came into Nazareth, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. That's the same verb. 
Another example is found in Acts chapter 13, verse 27. Paul's speaking in a synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia and says in verse 27, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. So Paul wanted this letter to be read publicly in the gathering of the saints. That is their worship service. And listen, I I get that we just readily accept this, right? Because this is the way it's always been for us. You come to church and somebody stands up here and they read from the Old Testament or New Testament scriptures. They read it to people. And when when, uh, appropriate, they explain God's word, expound God's word, and apply God's word. We call that preaching, right? But I want you to see from the earliest of times uh, why it was so important for someone, this, this group of people, to take this letter that was written from a man to a church to stand up and read it publicly in the midst of that gathering and to consider it to be the very words of Christ. See, the fact of the matter is this letter we've been reading every Sunday morning for the past year is the very same letter that Paul put the Thessalonians under oath to read to the church 2,000 years ago. It's the very same word that comes to us, that binds us, that teaches us, that instructs us, that corrects us, that encourages us, that transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. So, so let's consider now what is the purpose of this? Why is this so important? What is the purpose of this command? Well, I think we will see that for someone to stand up and read this publicly in the church at Thessalonica, it served three purposes, and it still serves those three purposes, not only for them, but for us today at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. What are those purposes? First, to read this letter publicly provided apostolic authority. It provided apostolic authority. The letter was to be read to all the brethren because it was not simply an epistle written by Paul, but it is a message from King Jesus. Yes, of course, Paul authored it, right? But we know Paul is speaking on behalf of Christ with the very same authority of Christ. This isn't just a letter. This is a message from the king to his people by way of his special ambassador, the apostle Paul. It carries with it the full weight and authority as if Christ had written it himself. So much that Paul can actually say to disregard these things is to disobey not man, but God. That's the reality. So Paul could put them under oath, publicly demand that they read this letter because he understood it and they recognize it as the new covenant word written by the new covenant head, Jesus the Christ. Its instructions bear the very same weight of that of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. It comes with the same authority and it it comes with the same necessity to respond. And listen, don't miss the redemptive historical significance of this, okay? Every Sabbath, and and throughout the scriptures and throughout history, every Sabbath, they read the Old Testament in the synagogue. While at the same time, every Lord's Day, they read the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, we see from the book of Acts that they were reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. 
They didn't have it fully together yet. It had not yet come to them in book form. Yet we see very clearly that they would stand up, they would read from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and then the Apostle Paul would come and and interpret that in light of the New Covenant spiritual realities which we now possess in the New Testament. As Jesus had explained in Matthew 13 verse 52, he said this, Therefore, every scribe instructing, instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So Paul charged them to read this publicly because everyone needed to be addressed by God's word. It was for the whole church. Every brother and sister in Christ needed to be addressed by God's word and needed to come and sit under its instruction. And that is not only true for first century Thessalonica, friends. It's true for us at First Baptist Church of Great Gables in 2021. This verse reminds us that the command uh, to read and obey God's word is binding and never optional. That's why it's central to what we do here. The primary part of why we gather here on Sunday mornings is to be addressed by the Word of God. Not even as I come and read it to you and attempt to explain it and expound it, though that is pivotal, but as we read God's Word, as we sing God's Word, as we pray God's Word, as we see God's Word visibly symbolized through the ordinances. We are a people who are ruled and transformed by the Word of God. And listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, right? But I can't help it. We don't gather to hear what I think or how I might instruct you to be a better wife, better husband, better father, better mother, employee, or boss. Though God's word does that, certainly. But you don't need my opinions on that. We don't gather so that I or any other pastor can entertain you with stories or fantastic rhetoric. We gather to meet with a king, That's what we're doing this morning. And as these two small verses were read to you, the words of the king came to you. Weekly, we are addressed by the one true and living God. And listen, I know you guys know this because I've drilled this. You've heard me say this a billion times. But really hear me. If there was any way for me to take this and just cram it into your ears, right? To so impress it upon your brain that you were so convinced of its truth that you availed yourself to every opportunity to hear God's word, to sit under God's word, to be taught by God's word. All time, I would do so. Because God's word has power, Paul understood this. Paul put them under oath that they might read it because it was an apostolic word, the very words of Christ that came with power. Paul had another purpose, though, in commanding them to read this publicly. Not only did it provide apostolic authority, but it also promoted unity. I want you to see this. This command in verse 27 was given to promote unity. Just like in the Old Testament, they were to read this word publicly and regularly. Now, I I know we don't see in verse 27 the Apostle Paul tell them to read it more than once, but we know from church history that's exactly what they did. They didn't just stand up there and say, hey, guys, look, Paul wrote us a letter. Let's read it. And then they threw it in the back somewhere. No. How do we know that? Because how do we have it today? It's because 
they copied it and passed it on and copied it and passed it on and copied it and passed it on. They read it again and again and again. It's one of the reasons why we have so much early manuscript evidence of the originals. Because when they received it, they regarded it as the new covenant word for God's people. This word is a covenant word and it binds the people together as they come and sit under it. It speaks to each of them individually while uniting them at the same time as the Holy Spirit transforms the way they see and they live in the midst of this world. That is what the word does. The you here is almost always you all. We often boil it down to me, but it's meant to have a corporate effect. The primary concern here is the church reflecting the image of her Savior. So, look around you. Members of First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, you are a people who have been formed by the Word of God. The gospel does not simply bring dead people to life and then leave them alone to their own devices. The very moment the Holy Spirit regenerates us by the effectual call of the gospel, we are born into a family. So Paul wanted this letter to unite the church in Thessalonica around the truth of the gospel. Now let's look at the last purpose this command was given from verse 27. Why in the world did they need to read this publicly? Well, it provided apostolic authority. It promoted unity, but it also provoked change through correction, instruction, and encouragement. This is what this letter intended to do. This is why he wanted them to read it publicly. Because this letter provoked change through correction, instruction, and encouragement. As the word of God always does. You cannot really sit under the word of God as a Christian and not have it continually change you. I know this almost goes without saying, but just again, think about the original context here. This young new church of the Thessalonians. This was an occasional letter, meaning that Paul crafted it for a specific occasion in the life of this young church. They needed to be corrected. They needed to be instructed. They needed to be encouraged. And that's what this letter did, provoking change. So I want to consider each of those. First, the letter provided much needed correction. Paul aimed to correct sexual immorality, reminding them that God called them in holiness and that his will for them was holiness. That they should therefore control their bodies in holiness because God had given them the Spirit. Paul addressed those who were skirking their responsibility to work, urging them to mind their own business, to live quietly. Don't be a mooch, he says, to work with your own hands. Stop being a mooch. Go ahead and provide for yourself and your family. Get a job. Stop stirring up strife among the outsiders. Paul also corrected some wrong theology about the end times, right? Christians who die before the Lord's return, they're not at any disadvantage. Yes, we mourn them, but we do not mourn them like those who have no hope. Why? Because we know when Christ returns, they will be raised in him. Praise be to God. Those who die before Christ's return will not miss out at any point of the grand finale. No one needs to worry about the day or the hour that the Lord Jesus returns uh, because many of them were concerned about this and it brought them anxiety because they knew that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Well, they were right about that part, weren't they? But they did not need for them to, to, to be anxious about this. There was no need. Why? 
Because the Apostle Paul reminds them, you're not children of darkness, as Miss Pam just saying. You are children of light, children of the day. You're not destined for wrath, but destined to obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. He corrected their lack of regard for esteem and, and respect for their church leadership. And listen, all of these corrections are still needed today. And if they're not needed today, they will be needed tomorrow. Pursue holiness. Avoid sexual morality. Work to provide sufficiently for your family. Don't mourn without those who have no hope. Don't be fearful of the return of Christ, but be expectant. Respect and esteem the leadership of the church. These corrections are still needed, and we as a church have benefited from them this last year. Second, not only did Paul aim to correct them, he aimed to instruct them. He reminded them in chapter 2 of the authenticity of the gospel proven by the faithfulness and integrity of the preacher, Paul. He recounts how he had come to them after being beaten in Philippi. He came with boldness regardless. He didn't come with fancy words or schemes to try and trick them, but instead he just proclaimed the gospel of God to them. And listen, not only did he proclaim it, but he lived it in such a way that he actually modeled it. Right? That he bore witness of it. He was blameless before them. They could know that this gospel was real because the one who proclaimed it, proclaimed it faithfully. He instructs them on the coming wrath of God against those who reject the gospel message. He reminds them that the death and resurrection of Jesus is their only grounds for hope. Paul instructed them to pursue comprehensive holiness. He instructed them on how to do community. You remember, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, devote yourself to the weak, being patient with them all. He reminds them not to repay evil for evil, but instead to always pursue what is good for everyone and to help others do the same. Stop me if you're, you're reminded of this one. He instructed them to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. He instructed them to obey God's word, to not despise the word of God, but to receive it and obey it. Listen, church, what church doesn't need to hear those things? Who doesn't need to be instructed on how to walk in this way? But listen, Paul didn't just correct them and instruct them, but Paul consistently encouraged this church. And specifically, he encouraged them to stand firm. Why? Because this church, for most of its existence, had existed in the midst of persecution from the very beginning. And we see the very beginning in Acts chapter 17, don't we? We know the Apostle Paul, he came into Thessalonica. He reasoned and persuaded them from the scriptures in the synagogue. God did a fabulous work there for three to six weeks. And then the Bible says that some Jews gathered some worthless men to come and stir up riots against them. This church had existed in the midst of that persecution since that very moment from the beginning. So Paul encourages them. He says, you've received the word of God in the midst of much affliction. He explained to them that they had received from their countrymen the very same thing that those in Judea had received from the Jews. He commends them for their labor of love, their work of faith, and their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He commends them that their faith has been known all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. He commends them in all these ways, but I want you to see this. The primary way that Paul encourages this, this young church, is simply to remind them of their identity in Christ. And listen, 
All of these phrases, beloved, these definitive words and phrases we see throughout this letter, they're not just true of that church in the first century. They're true of us today. This is who we are. We are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. We are loved by God. That's not just a statement. That's a truth about our identity. It's who we are. What greater reward could you hope to receive in this life other than the love and acceptance of God? We no longer labor for his love. We are loved and, and we labor because of his love, not for it. We are chosen. We are called. We are children of light, children of the day. We are saved. That should be encouraging. And all of this is found here in this one short epistle. All of the instruction and correction found throughout this letter is grounded in this new reality. Now, mind you, this is just like the Apostle Paul. This is characteristically Pauline, we would say. He comes to them and calls them simply to become what they are. You find it from beginning to end. You are loved. You are called. You are chosen. You're children of light, destined for salvation. This is who you are. And throughout all this letter, he's simply saying... Be that. Be who you are. Every one of these commands we've seen from this letter, every one of these imperatives, they flow from these glorious truths. Paul put them under oath to read it publicly and think about it. The rebellious idler is not just simply told to work with his own hands. It's not as if the Apostle Paul wrote that part and said, hey, you know what, that part about the rebellious idler, I want you to talk to Joe about that. Read that section specifically to him. No, that's not how it works. The rebellious idler is reminded that he needs to work with his own hands because he is loved by God, he's been chosen by God, and he's been called into his own kingdom and glory. Now, all that he does, whether he works with his own hands or whether he eats or drinks, can be done unto the glory of God. Same goes for those who are sexually immoral. The sexually immoral person is not simply told to stop fornicating. They are addressed as God's children. And as God's children, God has called them not to impurity, but in holiness. And he has actually given them his spirit to come and dwell in them. They are set apart by God and for God. See, the desire for physical pleasure, it's not something that simply needs to be quenched. It needs to be replaced that's how the gospel works. That, by the way, is why the law could never work. Because it's not enough to simply say, yes, dear, you need to have a heart that is set on fire by the gospel word and the work of the Holy Spirit so that your greatest desire actually becomes God. It's not that they need to desire less. It's that they need to desire more. And God offers himself. And friends, when we begin to understand that he is our reward... That he is our greatest good, then we will really begin to understand the gospel. So, Paul demands that the whole letter be read publicly so that the word of Christ and all these glorious truths might correct, instruct, and, and encourage the people of God by the grace of God. And that's where we'll turn next, very, very briefly. We're going to look at the grace of Christ. This is where we end. By the way, Paul ends all of his letters with a grace benediction like the one we read here in verse 28. Read it with me. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. A couple things I, I want to, to, to tell you about this benediction, this grace benediction in verse 28. First, uh, is that secular letters always ended with a farewell wish. We see this throughout history. Secular letters always ended with a farewell wish. It would say something, and I don't mean to quote Spock here, but it would say something like, be strong, live long, and prosper. It really would uh, say something to that effect. It kind of served like a sincerely yours or yours truly to, to cap off the end of the letter. But the farewell wish, it was a request uh, that health and wealth be granted to the letter's recipient. And I want you, I say that because I want you to see Paul uses this letter writing convention here. He uses the same one, but he adapts it to express a prayer for what the church needed most. That's what the Apostle Paul does here in verse 28. He takes this letter writing convention, this farewell wish, and he adapts it to express a prayer for what the church needed most. And guess what the church needed most? It wasn't human wisdom. It wasn't human strength or influence. Not worldly power, fame, or riches. No, Paul's plea is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ continue in its work in them. That's what they need. All the change Paul ever had hoped to provoke through his correction, instruction, and encouragement were all dependent upon the grace of Christ. A peace benediction and a grace benediction is how he closes this letter because they are the very grounds for Paul's hope that these believers would rightly respond to the things that he has said. That's the grounds. In fact, this grace benediction we see in verse 28, it flows from the gospel. This grace benediction flows from the gospel. It is an expression of the gospel itself. In fact, this grace benediction only makes sense in light of the gospel, right? The good news that those who deserve wrath and death have now been given grace and life because of Christ. That's the gospel. Christ has lived for us. Fulfilling the law perfectly on behalf of his people. He willingly and obediently died the death on the cross. Taking upon himself the wrath and punishment of God. For all those who would believe on him. He was raised from the dead for their justification. The vindicated one. The righteous one. And now he is ascended to heaven at the right hand of God. Where he works to bestow grace upon grace upon grace to his people. He is reigning even now. So, see, look, if you just read verse 28, if you just read that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and you don't pause to think about the cost of that grace or how you've been given access to that grace, you miss the gospel in it. That grace is the unmerited favor and kindness of God toward those who deserve the exact opposite. Paul does it right, as would have been expected in his day, be strong and prosper. This final benediction is what the Thessalonian church needed most. And they needed the grace of God. The grace that flows from the person of Christ because of the work of Christ. I can't imagine a more appropriate way to end this letter, to end this year in this letter that Paul had written. Listen, Christian. We are saved by grace alone. We know that, I know, but don't ever forget that you are being saved by grace alone. Understand that. You weren't just saved by it. You are being saved by it. Which means something, friends. It means it's grace from beginning to end. 
This is grace from beginning to end. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fountain of all saving grace. He's the eternal spring from which grace upon grace flows from God to his people. Jesus is our strength. He is our greatest reward. To be the recipients of God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of kindness. To be the recipients not of inherent strength, but of the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. To be the recipients not of wealth that will rust, fade away, and burn up eventually, but to be the recipient of the loving kindness of God that has no end. To be the recipient of the resources to live holy lives before God. That is grace. And those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, who cling to them, who follow him, their sanctification, their Christian growth, no less than their justification, will find that they have been planted by the never-ending streams of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your testimony this morning? Are you a student of the word who comes to sit under the word of Christ? Do you avail yourself of every opportunity, understanding its power? Or is coming to church just simply you check Something you do. It's your duty. Viewing that as your duty, listen, I I understand that. I would rather you come than not come, even if you come out of responsibility. But you're missing it. We come here because it is our treasure. We are students of the Word of God, and we come to sit under it at every possible opportunity. Not just even here in the church, but at home. As we lead our families, as we read the word daily, we understand this is who we are. And secondly, have you received the grace of Christ? Are you a child of light, child of the day? If you are, friends, it's because of the grace of Christ. And that same grace that saved you is the same grace that will complete the work of salvation in your life. So don't, don't pray some prayer or or receive even the grace of Christ at salvation and then think you are left alone in this world to not have any grace for yourself to grow. But that grace will continue to transform you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That if we have been justified, we will be sanctified and praise be to God, we will be glorified one day fully and completely in His presence. Amen. May it be so of us. Let's stand together as we close this time in God's Word. Father, gracious Father, it is indeed by grace alone that we've been saved. Father, would you help us this morning to grasp that even more? Lord, to be moved by that grace to recount every moment of every day that it is your grace that helps us on our way. Would we labor in light of that grace which is ours in Christ? Would we come daily to the throne of grace to receive grace upon grace in and through your Son that we would trust in nothing else? Would we recognize that every good work of ours is simply a product of that grace and not of our own strength or anything inherent to us, but instead it is all a gift from you? Would we celebrate you, therefore, every time we do anything right? And would Christ alone be our boast? Father, I thank you for this last year where you've instructed us in your word. I thank you for a church who's okay taking its time because they understand the value of the preached word of God. 
They understand, Father, that you can take two to five verses at a time because the Word of God is so rich and is such a treasure and is so vast and deep that it has plenty to say to us. Father, we are in constant need of it being explained, expounded, and applied. We thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you for the the epistle of 1 Thessalonians and how it is spoken to us, how it has been rightly ordained for the time in which we find ourselves and how you have used it to bestow grace upon us and to make us more like your son. Thank you. We celebrate that it is your grace that allows us to do these things. And we love you and thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.